Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about the Mi'kmaq people and the Halibut First Nation. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Today we're talking about drugs, crack, cocaine, fentanyl, dilaudin, booze. You can find all of them in our Mi'kmaq communities in Newfoundland. Just last month in Flat Bay, police seized half a pound of cocaine. But it's not only the illegal drugs that are causing problems. Often the drug comes from a pharmacy rather than a dealer. Initially, they're prescribed by a doctor for pain, and then the patient becomes hooked and goes to the street looking for more. Often they're mixed and taken by needle to make the drug go farther. And there is every indication the problem is becoming more severe in the Stephenville Bay St. George area in particular. Last year, the Swap Needle Exchange Program in Cornerbrook sent 41,000 needles to the Stephenville Bay St. George area. Since April 1st this year, they've already sent 24,000. Drugs take a toll on the user, the family, and the community. This week on Mi'kmaq Matters, we're talking about how to respond to the escalating problem of addictions. In particular, is there an Aboriginal response? Can our Mi'kmaq cultural tradition be part of the healing? Can ceremony provide the spiritual strength needed to beat addictions? We'll be talking to people on the front lines and to someone who faced her own challenges with alcohol and drug addiction and found healing when she embraced tradition and ceremony. First, Jessica Hackett, Harm Reduction Manager for SWAP, the Safe Works Access Program. She's located in Cornerbrook, but her office has needles on an anonymous basis to anyone in Western Newfoundland and Labrador who requests them. I asked her about the demographics of the people asking for service, the age range, and the kinds of drugs they're using. So Jessica, just can you just tell us about the services that uh, SWAP provides? Sure. So SWAP stands for the SafeWorks Access Program. So essentially, we are a SafeWorks distribution program that is completely free and confidential and available to everyone within the province. So we have an office here in Corner Brook, and we service the entire western region as well as the northern peninsula and Labrador. And then the St. John's office would service the rest of the island. So we provide things like needles and other safe injection equipment, and we provide things like crack kits as well as condoms and lubricant with the overall goal of basically just trying to reduce some of the negative consequences that are related to intravenous drug use, so things like the contraction of HIV and hepatitis C, for example. Right, and you don't have an office in in Stephenville, but uh, as you say, you send out uh, materials uh, by mail. and so what can you tell us about uh, about the Stephenville Basin George area in terms of of the requests you're getting from that uh, area and whether there's been a change in uh, in the number of requests you're getting Sure. So we do send mail outs to Stephenville and all of the surrounding Bay St. George region as well. So the way people contact us is they just give us a call at 634-SWAP. They let us know what they want in their order and where it can be sent to, and we send it out. And that's, of course, completely free and confidential as well. Um, in the last couple of years since I've been in the job, there has been an increase in the number of orders that have been sent to Stephenville. It's a little bit difficult to say if that correlates to more drug use in the area or not, because it could also correlate to the fact that there's more awareness around SWAT, maybe a little bit more trust in the program and things like that. 
So um, it's a little bit hard to say, but we have seen a bit of a change in what people have been requesting. So since I started the job, we've always heard that things like Dilaudid and Percocets, which are prescription opiates, were really popular, and that was what a lot of our clients were saying that they were using. But in the last little while, we've seen an increase in the number of people ordering um, crack supplies as well. So we believe that perhaps that's becoming more of a popular drug of choice than it was in the past. And as well, we've actually started recently getting a lot more requests for um, needles to be used for steroid usage as well. So we're seeing a little bit of a shift in what has been ordered. Saying that, the supplies that have been ordered for things like Dilaudid and Percocet hasn't necessarily changed. We've just seen some additional requests coming in. The people using those, are they the people who actually get the prescription or do they get them on the street um, rather than from their doctor directly? And how, how do they use them? Do they just take them orally or are they uh, taken with a, with a needle sometimes? Um, okay, so I would say a bit of both for your first question. So people are getting these prescribed to them for, um, you know, for the most part, valid reasons. So chronic pain, if someone has had an accident or they have a chronic disease management, so they have opiates prescribed to them. And some people are taking them orally and taking them as meant to be prescribed. And some people do develop some addictions to these medications as well, even though in the beginning they were um, prescribed them for valid reasons, but they continue to be prescribed them even after the pain associated with the original cause of prescription may have passed, but the withdrawal symptoms are creating the pain now. So we do see a little bit of both that people do, um, you know, originally get prescriptions and then are taking them as needed. And then perhaps as time goes on, um, they develop an addiction and then they do perhaps uh, turn to injection as well. So some of our clients um, report having bought on the streets as well. So either their prescription has run out or, um, you know, they have developed an addiction because they've been buying it from someone else and now they're turning to the street. So there are a lot more restrictions coming down the pipelines for doctors in terms of prescribing these medications. And that's kind of turning, um, a, it's a good thing, but at the same time it is creating a bit of a street market for these drugs as well, which creates the problem of things being laced and not necessarily knowing what might be in the pharmaceutical. So when people use them uh, with needles, Perhaps they mix them with other things, so uh, you're dealing not only with the, the actual drug, but what, what gets mixed in for, for needle use. Yes. Well, some people, if they have a prescription, and they can actually just cut down the drug themselves, and if they are injecting, then they are not necessarily having things laced. They're probably mixing in with water or something like that. But for people who perhaps have a prescription and are diverting that onto the streets to make a profit for themselves, they may be using other substances uh, to cut that pill down to be able to stretch those pills further. So we do know that that is certainly happening, too. So we can't be naive enough to say that there is no diversion going on in pharmacies. And do you have a sense of the of the people requesting the uh, the needles? Are we talking about uh, about younger people? Are we talking about people a little older? Do you have a sense of the the age group we're talking about? 
So each month we do tally uh, the ages of the folks who are coming to us for supplies and the age group, um, the average age per month for the entire region that I serve is usually around 34.7 years of age. However, in saying that, we do have a lot of younger people in you know their early 20s, for example, who are accessing us purely just for condoms. So they do kind of skew that data a little bit. So I would actually estimate that the population for injection drug use is somewhere we're in the early 40 age range. We are seeing a fairly equal male to female ratio, which is interesting because in the past, when we first began this service, we were seeing um, there were a lot more males that were accessing the service. So that's been a little bit of an interesting thing to watch develop. Jessica Hackett from SWAP. For those who want to deal with their addictions, help is available. Michelle Skinner is Manager of Mental Health and Addictions for Western Health, serving the Stephenville, Bay St. George, Burgeo area. Unlike in some areas of the province, there's no waiting list in Stephenville. Michelle Skinner says the healthcare system sees the value in building in an Aboriginal cultural component, and she expects to see more of that in the future. I think the, uh, the level of need is quite high in our communities. Um, to our service here in Stephenville, we have approximately about 250 referrals uh, for service uh, yearly. And that's increased. We've seen an increase in that over the past um, five or six years. Uh, not, not by a dramatic increase, but like a continual growth in that, uh, in that area. But that's people who access service. That's in no way a reflection of the actual need in the community, which we know, of course, is, is quite a bit higher than that as well as people do uh, receive treatment for addictions um, and do, uh, I guess, uh, main, maintain or, um, uh, you know, work on their recovery uh, in a lot of different ways, not necessarily just entering into our uh, traditional kind of uh, service delivery system. So just saying that about 250 referrals were received last year, and our fiscal year goes from um, – April 1st, so April 1st, 2015 to March 31st, 2017, sorry, 16, 17 years. So our our, our most current year data um, would say that, um, you know, our highest percentage of people coming in for service is for poly drug use. And that has changed over the last three years. Prior to that, our highest level, our highest number of people uh, accessing service was for alcohol. Uh, And when you say polydrug, does that mean they're using more than one substance or they're dealing with a a combination uh, issue? Yes, that is is correct. And we've broken that down as well in terms of what that polydrug use looks like. And the highest percentage in that uh, category, you know, would be uh, prescription uh, drug use, opiates and others. Uh, And that may be then in in conjunction with uh, marijuana, cocaine, alcohol. So when people present with using more than one uh, substance. Uh, we uh, we we call it poly drug use, and then we we uh, then um, uh, look at the more spe- specifics under that uh, ca- that category. If people uh, are referred to you, what what can they receive, and do you do you prioritize some cases over other cases if there's perhaps an urgent need? Yes, absolutely. All of our, um, all the referrals that come into our service, um, we would call it like a triage or there would be an intake appointment uh, where a person uh, can be seen the same day. We have walk-in intake uh, at this point and uh, they are prioritized uh, based on a priority system based on the impact that the uh, usage is having in their life. What we do see is that most people, once they 
when they access addiction services. They are the need is quite high. So uh in our Steamwell office uh and in Port of Asperger, in all of our offices at this point, we have no wait list for service. So if someone walks in for an outpatient uh you know, an outpatient service, uh they can be seen for their intake and then they can be uh offered service immediately. That's not the case in all offices across the region or the province, but here uh, in our area, uh, we are able to see people immediately. I see. So, and after the intake, what happens then? Do they talk to a counselor uh, one-on-one? That's right. And the intake is done by a a clinician as well. Uh, So they would talk to a counselor and they would uh, look at what their their, uh, identified uh, needs were based on their their personal goals. And uh, then they would work either on a harm reduction strategy and or an abstinence uh, model. And, uh, you know, that would include um, work with the family members as well. And it may include outpatient uh, continued outpatient service, or it may include an inpatient treatment program, you know, and or um, a methadone program, depending on what the uh, client is presenting with. Now, of course, in your area, through Stephenville, Bay St. George, Virgil also, there's, uh, there's, uh, there are many Mi'kmaq people, it's uh, Bay St. George in particular, and I wonder if... Um, if you think that bringing in a, a sort of Aboriginal cultural component into addiction services, do you think that's that's possible to do, and do you think it would be helpful? Uh, I think it is uh, definitely helpful that uh, a person who is struggling with addiction, uh, you know, be able to have as a wide range of supports uh, as they can. And certainly what works for one person sometimes doesn't work for another person. So, and I think, um, you know, recognizing uh, the high population that we do have uh, of Mi'kmaq people in our area, I think it is something that we are, um, we are, uh, integrating into some of our services, uh, certainly um, in terms of a net, a consultation and partnering uh, with some of the uh, Mi'kmaq groups uh, like NON, the Bay St. George Cultural Circle. Like we do have, we do have uh, links uh, with, with those groups and certainly they are providing, uh, you know, a, a lot of service as well uh, to people who are struggling with uh, mental health and addictions issues. So in terms of our, we do not have a specific uh, cultural component uh, to the work that we are doing uh, at this point, but I think it is something that is evolving as well as um, you may be aware, the um, province uh, recently undertook um, an all-party committee um, approach to changing the mental health and addiction system uh, for the province, and one of their priority areas uh, is Indigenous health. And under that um, under that um, uh, group, I think there will be a lot more focus around how do we either work together and or integrate uh, more uh, work from a cultural uh, uh, compo- uh, competency uh, perspective. So I think it is uh, certainly um, important, and I think that we uh, do need to continue to work together to uh, kind of work that into service delivery to see how it uh, better meets the needs of some of the people from our communities. Yes. And do you have a sense of what that would look like? Uh, I guess we're just in the initial stages now, but once it were 
that were up and running, it was a real thing that had been implemented. Do you have a sense of what that would look like in, in real life? Yeah, I haven't uh, really looked at that in, from like a program perspective, but certainly I know like some of the uh, individuals that we work with, uh, we certainly like do um, encourage and, uh, you know, when they identify uh, that they have connections uh, to, uh, you know, uh, to their culture here, like um, things like uh, smudging, people have asked, uh, you know, for smudging and we don't do it here through our service but then that would be a link to, I think, in one particular uh, case I'm thinking about, you know, to Nan, where they were able to, you know, uh, meet with this uh, woman and they were able to do a smudging ceremony, and that was very helpful to her. Um, you know, I've, we've had people come back from inpatient treatment who really felt like they needed a, to, a sweat and to connect to a, a people who were offering sweat lodges so that people did have, were connected to their cultural components. And I think that, you know, that is um, the openness uh, to, and I guess the uh, understanding that, um, you know, there are many ways to uh, support people in addiction and recovery. And uh, I think those are some of the ways uh, we can do that and we can continue to do that. So I think we have to build on where things have worked and uh, what that has told us and, um, you know, continue to build our partnerships with, with the uh, uh, Aboriginal groups, uh, you know, in, in our area. As Michelle Skinner says, a blending of the Western and traditional Aboriginal approaches to dealing with addictions is on the horizon of health planners. But it's already happening here and there. Suzanne Barry told me about her struggle from an addiction to alcohol and prescription drugs. Suzanne Barry is the former president of NON, the Newfoundland Aboriginal Women's Network, and she's currently on the staff of the John Howard Society in Stephenville. She says that for her, and she thinks for many people, it's the combination of conventional counseling and an Aboriginal cultural component that's the most powerful. I was uh, working with, I was the lead social worker with a mobile crisis unit in uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick. And um, it was a very stressful job. We went out to uh, many people who, uh, who were either suicidal or in uh, uh, certainly a, a mental health crisis, and uh, we worked quite closely with RCMP and, and city police. And so um, at some point in that process, while I was working, um, doing my work with the mobile crisis unit, I, um, I realized that I was depressed. I didn't didn't know where it came from, had never been depressed in my life. But uh, eventually, of course, we made the connection with the, uh, with the work I was doing and the uh, you know, kind of burnout from that kind of work. So um, at some point along the line, I started drinking. And it was you know, maybe one or two drinks a night, and then I went up to maybe a bottle a night. And, uh, and at the, around the same time, um, I, had, uh, I had gone to my doctor, and he had prescribed pain medication for uh, my back. It was op opioids. And um, so I, uh, I continued to work that way, uh, staying, certainly staying sober during work. And, um, but at, at uh, the point just before I left New Brunswick, um, three people, uh, three officers had been uh, shot in uh, Moncton. And um, that was the point for me um, where life just took a spin and um, there were uh, friends of mine uh, in these officers, and um, 
I started to drink heavily, and then I began to overuse uh, my pain med- medication. It was hydromorphone. Um, my doctor prescribed it, and uh, and I took it. I was taking it inappropriately, certainly taking too much. And, um, and were, you, were you taking it in what form does that come in? Are they tablets? Those, no, those are capsules, and uh, they come in different milligrams. And um, my doctor at the time had prescribed um, s- several different uh, strengths of hydromorphone. Um, I have an autoimmune disorder, and so there's pain associated with that. Um, And eventually, when I became addicted to the medication, it wasn't enough, and I began to manipulate my doctor. And so he um, prescribed fentanyl for me, um, and and I became addicted uh, to fentanyl. And, uh, so you were you were drinking and uh, taking fentanyl, and were you also taking the uh, the hydro uh, morphine? I think it's called also, hydromorphone. But... Yes, I was taking uh, I was taking that together, and 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 I don't think I had a um, certainly a, a conscious acknowledgement of the fact that I, that I was addicted to this medication. I said, you know, this is prescribed, so of course it's okay. And mm-hmm. along with the alcohol, which, you know, people started to point out to me, uh, family members, that this may be a problem. But I still, you know, I'm working. I'm a working professional. I'm working in mental health and uh, and dealing with addictions. Of course I'd know if I was addicted. And at that point, I um, I guess it started to sink into me that maybe there was a problem. And um, I had a, uh, a suicide attempt, and um, it was almost successful. And that was the point when I said, okay, like this this has got to turn around. And so at that point I decided that I would uh, leave New Brunswick and move back home. Um, prior to this, I did had... You, did you, at home being St. George's? Yes, yes, back to Newfoundland. Because um, prior to my uh, involvement in drugs and alcohol, I had I used to do work on the, um, on the reserves in and around Fredericton. And the deep cultural connection that they had was that many people had was so healing and it was so um profound when they connected their uh cultural component with the the mental health piece of it and so i knew that our culture here was just growing it was quite young and still is and uh but I said, you know what, I'm. I, it's time for me to go home. And I had connected. And what year was that that you went back to St. George's? That was 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, a friend of mine had just um, had just killed himself. It was uh, Corporal uh, Ron Francis with um, the um, RCMP in New Brunswick. And um, that was all of this all together was just you know the final straw for me. But I came home. And, um, and what what did you find in St. George's at that time in terms of uh, of services available? Was there any anything happening on the in a Aboriginal context in terms of uh, addictions and healing, or was it conventional conventional uh, services you got at that time? Well, there wasn't even that because when I first moved home, um, I had a referral from my um, from my doctor. In, in New Brunswick saying that, you know, I needed to be seen here on an urgent level. Um, I think with the, for the psychiatrist, who was an amazing man, but I think uh, the psychiatrist in Stephenville, I probably saw him a year after I got home, and that was an urgent referral. And then I started counseling uh, at uh, mental health services in Stephenville. But um, 
some of it was through uh, video um, telehealth. It that didn't work for me, and um, and I just I don't think I was ready at that time. So then I got connected with my culture here, and it's it's funny how the the I think it just happens in every community when it's new and and just growing. There seemed to be like a couple of different um, groups who were practicing their culture in their own way, and so. I connected with uh, an elder, and um, I, through my my ceremonies, so like pipe ceremonies and sweat lodges, and along with my therapy at mental health services, because this was the second time I had connected with mental health services in Stephenville, having left it the first time because it just wasn't working. Once I built that connection with my culture and with the counselor that I was working with at mental health in Stephenville, I began to heal, and the healing was um, so profound. It was so uh, deep, and it it actually stayed with me. Like I'm still in recovery, which is something that I had attempted to get into several times in um, in New Brunswick, but I just I it, I could not heal. And then once I moved here, connected with my culture and with the uh, Western therapeutic modalities, um, I healed. And I'm right. still in recovery. Can you say a bit about the uh, what the what the feeling was, or what the what the impact was for you on the the uh, the traditional uh, approaches? How that was? Uh, did that give something to you different from what you got from um, the uh, the services at uh, at Mental Health in Stephenville? Absolutely, it's a it's a different it's a, a wonderful combination when you use both. Uh, and and um, keeping with my my uh, cultural uh, component was a very important thing and one that was um, certainly encouraged by my counselor at mental health. Um, but what you get from the ceremonies, it, it first of all you have to have a connection with your culture. Um, some people are new into it, and, and those people can have healing as well as anyone else, but it's believing in the power of the ceremonies that you, um, that you attend. It's believing that this is part of your healing. It gives you something that goes deeper than any, um, any other uh, counseling can do because this gives you something to hold on to, something that gets you through the rough spots, uh, and it's a and it's a part of who we are, and I think that that's, that that's the big thing. It's uh, connecting back to who we are as Aboriginal people. So using that, and and also um, you know uh, participating in in therapy um, from mental health, it goes much deeper than just using one or the other. I don't, my own personal opinion, I don't think that you can become whole. Um, by using just one if you're an aboriginal person because what we've come up you know what what we've been left with historically is a deep distrust of uh, of um the agencies like mental health because if you go to mental health you're crazy if you um go to child protection you're a terrible parent so i don't think i think we've we've been left with these insecurities and these doubts and this deep mistrust um, for um, agencies such as mental health, but I think if you use so I don't think you can you can become whole using just one type of of therapy unless 
you put something else into the mix, like um, like a deep spiritual belief, and whether that's Aboriginal or or Christian, whatever whatever works for you. But I think that that if there's something deeper for you as an Aboriginal person, I think that that's what's needed. Suzanne Barry. Mi'kmaq people in Western and Central Newfoundland are slowly recovering our culture and building up our community. Identifying elders, getting used to being in ceremony, going deeper into our Mi'kmaq identity. It's a work in progress. One of the newest additions to the community is the People of the Dawn Friendship Center. They're starting a family support group for individuals or families who have a loved one who abuses alcohol or other drugs. Here's Paul Pike, Director of Cultural and Community Programming, talking about how the family support group will work. Um, well, this is a family support group, families who have family members who are addicted to substances, whether that be alcohol or other drugs. And um, we're going to be meeting 6.30 p.m. on Monday, September 25th, over at the uh, the St. John's location, or excuse me, the St. George's location. And, uh, and so what, what our family group is all about it's uh, very often families of addicted people find they don't really have anywhere to go with their feelings of what's going on in the family. It's kind of like a, for some people, they might even feel family shame over the issue. So they kind of don't want to talk about it. What happens in the family stays in the family kind of mindset. And so we're trying to give people an opportunity because we've been told uh, that people really want that. So uh, it's an opportunity for people to come in. They get to uh, to share in a way that talks about their feelings. Uh, we're acting as a sounding board um, and offer supports. I mean, they might not realize uh, that they're enabling the person, and they might think they're helping them. And they don't realize they may be hurting. Um, they might need to learn about self-care, and that's a big part of the reason why they're coming there is to take care of themselves. So uh, we want to try to see what we can offer in all those areas. And uh, to be able to do it in a cultural way, make it feel safe, um, and and really not I, I really trying to stay away from a clinical atmosphere, but more of a, a more of a family oriented, we're all to, in this together kind of mindset. Paul Pike, the family support group starts 6:30 p.m. on Monday, September 25th at 329 Main Street in St. George's. And that's it for the show. Thanks to Allison Baker for assistance here in the studio. Celebration time used with the permission of Bigma artist Marcus Goss. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Matters. There are a number of ways to listen to Mi'kmaq Matters on SoundCloud or iTunes. Listen on Bay of Islands Radio, boir.ca, Thursday at 6 p.m. And tune in on Voice of Bombay, Tuesday at 2 p.m., 95.9 FM in Norris Point, 98.1 in Rocky Harbor. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Till next time.